If you're one of those who look at the events of the world today and think that things are spinning out of control, I'd say take solace because you're not alone. Things are spinning out of control. Except there's no solace in that. It seems as if there's a war on Christians and Christianity, and it seems like that because there is. Our Department of Justice has sued Christians who, because of their sincere beliefs, refuse to participate oh, in the way of making cakes or uh, providing uh, flowers for gay weddings, compelling a behavior that is against Christian beliefs. The DOJ says that this is discrimination, the Department of Justice, and cannot be tolerated. Liberal Christians, and by that I mean Christians, basically who do not believe in the Bible, and ultimately, therefore, God, say that Jesus would have approved of gay marriage and would have baked that cake. Right? A church near my daughter's house in uh, North Carolina has a big sign out front and it says Jesus didn't reject anyone and neither do we and to that I say tell that to the money changers in the temple Jesus not only drove them out of the temple he took the time to fashion a whip okay he didn't just go and turn over the money tables and drive them out of the house he made a whip first to chase them away Or how about this one? These are the seven woes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if he swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier things of the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. He was not very accepting of unrepentant sinners, which was what the scribes and the Pharisees were. Or how about this from John 17? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And Jesus continues on saying, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is about the most opposite of inclusive as you can be, is to say that I am not praying for the world. When when God brought the Israelites into Canaan, He ordered them to kill all the inhabitants of the land and to pull down their high places, the pagan shrines where they practiced child sacrifice. And yet you have people telling Christians that 
you can't be against a woman's right to choose. Abortion needs to be the law of the land. Interestingly, uh, this coming uh, summer may very well see a change to that policy, and we'll just see how that goes. But tell me again that God didn't, and Jesus didn't reject people, and neither should we. God rejects people who are in permanent rebellion to him. And so should we. Now Christians are told that we should be inclusive of all people, no matter how grave their sin, and no matter how recent their societal changes are. Just how recently we came to believe these things. But I'm here to tell you that Christians have been accepting, and in circumstances that we never should have been accepting in. As recently as my college years, homosexual acts were illegal. Now, were they prosecuted? I doubt that. I doubt sincerely that they were prosecuted. But nothing is prosecuted today either. So, you know, what does it matter? You can go down rob trains in L.A. You can set fire to Chicago or Detroit, and you're not going to get charged. Abortion was illegal when I was in college also. And now over a million abortions are performed in this country every year. Neo-paganism has arrived. And I just was reading this week that some schools are reporting that after-school Satan clubs are being established in their schools. Okay? I'm not making this up. After-school Satan clubs. And we're the ones that aren't accepting of different ideas, they say, No, it's Christianity that once again isn't acceptable to a pagan society. Our passage for today is Acts 4, 23 through 31. It says, when they were released, after uh, these are the Peter and John have stood before the Sanhedrin and the rulers of the temple and chief priests. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord God, look upon their threats and and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the first thing that Peter and John do after being released is gather with their friends as we're gathered here. And they were not gathering with the 5,000 people that had come into the church because there was no place in Jerusalem that could hold 5,000 people. 
They were probably in the upper room once again with the people that were with them at Pentecost, their close friends, uh, the disciples that had been with Jesus. And they were all gathered there together. And it says they reported to them what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them. Just last Sunday, I went to our association's messengers meeting. It's where we report on uh, what's going on in our respective churches and go over some business. In chapters 2 through 3 of the book of Revelation, it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna say, And to the angel of the church at Pergamum say, And to the angel of the church at Sardis say, Angel is simply the word for messenger. That is all that it means. We could have called our association's meeting uh, the angel's meeting, but in today's vernacular that wouldn't work because none of us were angels. Then they lifted up their voices together to God, it says, and then they quote Psalm 2, a psalm of David. Now, Psalm 2 has been (laughs) a gold record for the last 3,000 years when I was doing uh, music for Twin Peaks Church. I would do what I call King David's Greatest Hits because I didn't do modern worship songs. I did, well, they were modern worship songs, but the words were old. They were King David's uh, Greatest Hits. This one I, I didn't do, but it was a big hit in King David's time, and then Rich Mullins re-recorded in 1989. If you don't know who Rich Mullins is, well, Christianity Today named him the greatest Christian songwriter in the last 2,000 years for the song, Awesome God, which is his worst song. Just to let you know, but uh, his version of Why Do the Nations Rage is a wonderful song, and true to the song. Anyway, so they raise their voices and quote Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, Psalm 2 is the earliest messianic psalm. The Jews of Jesus' day saw many messiahs through their history because messiah simply meant anointed one. And if a prophet anointed somebody in Jerusalem, he was called messiah. Saul was anointed by Samuel and was a Messiah, as flawed and evil as he turned out to be. David, for his faults, was Messiah, anointed to Israel. Now the Jews were, and still theoretically are, waiting for the last Messiah, the son of David, who would be greater than David. So when the Jews read this psalm, It was, why did the Gentiles rage against David? Why did the people plot in vain against Israel? So, sort of a nationalistic psalm. They were the good guys in this psalm. Why did the people plot in vain against Israel? And the rulers set themselves against God and David. But in this prayer, those gathered here show what Psalm 2 is truly about. It's a messianic psalm. Verse 27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. The psalm was about David and Israel in one sense, but in the greater unfolding, 
it was about David's son Jesus. And Jesus was, it continued, verse 28b says, whom you anointed. So Jesus was anointed by God. He was the anointed one, the holy one of God, the Messiah, not a Messiah. So if it's about Jesus and not David, then who are the nations and peoples and kings and rulers who set themselves against God and his Messiah? Well, the apostles and disciples are about to name names and show not just the futility but the absurdness of trying to upset the plan of God. Because you see, those first few verses of Psalms, uh, Psalm 2, are not a plea for understanding. Why do the nations rage? They, they weren't asking for an explanation. It's a rhetorical question from the perspective of God. Why do the nations, the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2 continues with the nation saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They're making their plots against Jesus. They're making their plots against God's plan. And God laughs in derision at them. Verse 27b says that those so opposed, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So the kings of the earth here are representative, represented um, by Pontius Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire. So, the rulers against Jesus were represented by Herod, who was not truly a king, but appointed a ruler by Caesar. And he was a Jewish political leader. The Gentiles, who raised their voices against Jesus, were, of course, the Romans, and by extension, any pagan society that did not accept the lordship of Jesus. So, they were just everybody... And so, who were the people who plot in vain? Well, they give the answer right there that it is Israel, the peoples of Israel, who plotted in vain against Jesus. The ones that God in heaven laughs at. The ones, Psalm 2 says, that God holds in derision. And God laughs at Herod, and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All the plotting and scheming accomplished nothing but what God had already predestined was going to happen. Verse 29a says, and now Lord, look upon their threats. So the apostles bring their situation before the Lord, but instead of asking that the danger they faced be removed, they asked instead, uh, 29b continues, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. They don't ask for the threat to go away, they ask for courage. 
verse 30 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now remember that they were charged originally by the authorities to know by whose name they were doing these miracles. And they said, by the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what they are going to continue doing. Verse 31 concludes our passage for today. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And I don't know if you do, but I do. I I often think of the Holy Spirit as passive, as a passive voice in the Bible, something inside of us and working. But there is nothing passive about the Holy Spirit. Here it says that there was a shaking and everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit was announced by a sound as though of a great wind. In Sunday school last week, when I was talking about the Trinity showing up in the first verse of the Bible, and I said, you know, and God's Spirit hovered over the, over the waters. And Robin said that his version said, vibrated, a shaking. It was vibrating over, you know, hovering is sort of passive. Vibrating is a little bit more, a little bit more active. In Acts 16.25, we see that a Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas, are in jail, and they're praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. An earthquake, once again, who was it but the Holy Spirit that was letting Paul and Silas out of jail? Next week in chapter 5, we have the Holy Spirit acting again. This is not nearly as much fun. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira coming up. And they being struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. That is not a passive voice. The Holy Spirit is as passive, as you see here, as an earthquake. Let's finish Psalm 2. I've said before that it's the earliest messianic psalm. Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So once again we have here, what do we have? We have people trying to cast off the authority of God, just as they are doing today in this country now. They are saying, let's cast off these cords. They do not want to be tied in any way to God. But it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, 
and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, he warned. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Very telling language. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Old Testament is all about the son of God who is going to come as a savior to his people. Last week in Sunday school we looked at the number of times that Uh, Several times that the Trinity showed up in the Old Testament together. Robin sent me a video with even more. Very interesting. Now it would be a thousand years from the writing of this psalm until Jesus came. One thousand years of waiting the anointed one of God. And then what happened when the son of God actually came? I started this sermon out talking about the increasing paganization of our society up to and including having after school Satan clubs. How did we get here in a country founded 350 years ago, 400 years ago on on Judeo-Christian principles? The forces of darkness never sleep and we do. And it's ever been so. God spoke to his chosen people through the prophets who were recognized as such by the Jews for 1,500 years. Well, they're still recognized 4,000 years later as prophets. But for 1,500 years, God spoke through them. And for 1,500 years, they continually fell away and chased after false gods time after time. Despite the miracles of the crossing of the wilderness into Canaan despite everything that God did for them they fell away despite the obvious hand of God on the United States for the last 300 years we are busy falling away well the Bible is a record of the failures of the Jews those fallings away but for 1,500 years, as I said, God led his people through the prophets. And then one day, one day, he fell silent. And he fell silent for either 450 or 500 years. No prophets in Israel. Nobody rose up. There was no voice in Israel of God's word. So for 500 years, no prophets were heard in the land. Micah 4 were the very last words of God to the Jewish people. The Jewish Bible. You know, I had to look up to see what the Jewish Bible was. That's how bad I am. Because it's not the, I'm, is it the Torah? No, it's not the Torah. Is it the, no, it's not that. It's, the Jewish Bible in its entirety is called the Tanakh. T-A-N-A-K-H. Um, and it ends, and the Jewish Bible, because it ended came to the ending with these words. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, 
so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's it. So have you ever wondered why the Jews, when John the Baptist came, came to him and said, are you Elijah? This is the last thing that was said to the Jews in the, in the Tanakh, in their Bible, was that he would send Elijah. And they would come in and they asked John, are you Elijah? And John said, no. But he was a type of Elijah. He was preparing the way, just as God says here, for the reconciliation. When it says here that he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, that's, the, that's a term of reconciliation. That things would be reconciled once again. The question is, after 500 years of waiting for God to speak, and now John the Baptist comes, and now Jesus starts his ministry, and they know that it's the hand of God. And, you know, the prophets didn't just write things down. They did things. And here is John. And they knew he was a prophet. And then Jesus comes along, and they know he's a prophet. Why didn't they listen? Okay, after 500 years. Well, I pointed out previously that, you know, when they say that the uh, nation of Israel does not believe in, rejected Jesus. Well, it was, in fact, the nation of Israel that rejected Jesus. It was not necessarily the people. And when I say that, who's rejecting Christianity in this country right now? 67% of citizens in the United States say that they are Christians. And I believe that most of them probably are. That leaves 33% of the populace who is hounding Christians out of public life. It is not the people doing that. It is the government. And it was the government who rejected Jesus in his time. So why, why would the leaders of the Jews do that? Well, they got really comfortable with their role for 500 years. There were no pesky prophets hanging around, coming and saying, Thou art the man. Ooh. There was a great shaking. Thou art the man. They could go about doing what they wanted and not being concerned with God. They could, they could as Jesus said, tie their mint and their cumin and neglect the weightier things of the law. The leaders were very happy with the status quo. And our leaders are very happy with the status quo that they are busy instituting. We're now 4,000 years down the line from when these things, from the beginning of God's revelation. We're 3,000 years from Psalm 2. For the last 2,000 years, 
God is speaking to, has been speaking to us through the faithful teaching and preaching and reading of his word. But now in this country, Christians are being pushed out of the public square. They're being purged from the military. My son, as you know, is an Air Force officer. When he originally went into the Air Force, his idea was to do his five years and then go to seminary, become a pastor. And I asked him at that time, and this was five years ago, I said, oh, would you go back into the military as a chaplain? And he looked at me and said, Dad, a military chaplain is like the worst job in the world you could possibly have. And I said, why? He said, because they're not allowed to talk about Jesus. They want a generic God in the military. This country wants a generic God. You know, the, the, the Jews of, in the Roman Empire would not worship a generic God. And it was thought to be not nice in Lutheran terms, in Minnesota terms. It was not nice. You guys won't worship our gods. We'll worship your God because the gods were generic. They weren't, as Aristotle said. He said, I won't follow false gods. Jews would not follow false gods. But in the military today, they're asking chaplains, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Just the generic word God is what you are going to be doing. He said, no, absolutely I would never go into the military and become a, be a chaplain. Bible-believing Christians are no longer welcomed uh, increasingly in politics. I wonder if a real Bible-believing Christian could be elected on the Democrat side. Or in school boards? Or in law enforcement? And how has this happened? Well, starting 50, 150 years ago, progressives, and yes, there were progressives around 150 years ago, Teddy Roosevelt used that name explicitly, and it already had a meaning back then. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a progressive. One of the worst presidents we ever had. The only Christian minister to ever be elected president. He was Presbyterian, as a matter of fact. Should have gotten a good Presbyterian education. But progressives were around back then. But anyway, the progressives of 150 years ago basically asked Satan's original question. Did God really say about anything 150 years ago, right around the turn, time of the Civil War, which was 160 years ago. You know where we got the Southern Baptists? Well, they were all Baptists. And one group, the Northern Baptists, didn't agree with the Southern Baptist interpretation of the Bible, which was more orthodox than the Northern Baptist. There are still Northern Baptists today. Did you know that? Have you ever heard of the Northern Baptist Convention? There is a Northern Baptist Convention. But they split off because of the progressivism within Christianity. 2,000 years ago, faced with threats from their priests and rulers, the apostles pushed back to their very faces. The apostles said, we will follow God rather than you. 
That was the answer to murderous, and I will say murderous. They killed Jesus. I'd say that's about murdering as you can get. God-loathing, and they were God-loathing. They did not want to follow God. The Sadducees were a simply a club, conservative Jewish club of the time. But they were murderous, God-loathing, and thugs. We'll go with that too. And it's the same answer to what we're facing today, whether they be politicians, school boards, tech oligarchs, or whatever it is. We must follow God and not the state. And that's actually the real reason why they want Christians out of public life. Christians have never been able to be controlled. They have never been able to be controlled. Because as the old commercial goes, we answer to a higher authority. We will follow God and not man. And that's what we have to continue doing. Just pushing back in the public square, not allowing to be shoved aside. Lord, you have commanded us to be a light on the hill. Not to hide our light under a bushel, but to put it on a hill so that everyone can see it. Lord, help us as a community, as a people, as followers of you, to live our life in such a way that it will be a light shining. Give us strength in these times. Keep us pushing for the good in the face of Satan clubs keep us preaching your word following you and holding back the darkness that wishes to envelop this country I pray this in Jesus name Amen